Hello, good morning, church. We didn't do a sound test, so if you can hear me, just do this. Okay. Yes, we can hear you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm really glad again to come here to share the word with you today. And for those who are new to the church, my name is Xiangling. Uh, and the regular thing I do around in church is that um, I'm part of a team of our youth uh, ministry leaders. So we had a game night last night with our youths, um, it was online, and I told my youths, hey, I'm preaching tomorrow, um, would you like to come and support me? I don't know if any, any of them are here, if they woke up, but before I do anything else, I want to say this to them. If you are here this morning, I want to say welcome. And I'm really, really glad you made it. And I'm really glad you came to support me. And for the rest of us, without the privilege of being called the youth, well, you know my welcome goes out equally to you. And so last Sunday as a church, we observed Pentecost Sunday. And remember the time over 2,000 years ago inscribed in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the gathered disciples and it was accompanied by appearance of fire and the speaking of tongues. And the church then received power to take the good news to Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And as Jan said, today we celebrate as Trinity Church, Trinity Sunday. And I believe that the Holy Spirit also wants to fill us in this manner too. And He wants to fill us and He wants to continue to fill us. And He wants to empower us and to commission us to be His salt and His light and to take His message of hope to a broken and hurting world. So, somebody say Amen to that. Amen. I can't hear you, but... Amen. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. It, it's, so the question is whether we, we are the ones we are, we are waiting and we are expecting, like the disciples did 2,000 years ago in the upper room. The question is not the Holy Spirit's willingness. The question is our willingness to stand up and to receive His commission and to say, like Isaiah did in our reading today, here I am, send me. So when I was preparing the sermon, I was like, usually I just empty my mind and I was grappling around for a pictorial illustration. In my mind's eye, I saw a sponge. And to help us with in our imaginations, I found a picture of a sponge. And now uh, Rajesh is going to help me by flashing a picture of the sponge. Ta-da! A sponge. And, well, the thing about these sponges, it's all nice and soft, right, coming out of the packaging. But after one use of it, if you leave it, if you leave it aside, and we, when it all dries up, what happens? It becomes rock hard. And then to be useful again, you need to soak it in a bucket of water. You, and you just can't just, you know, dip it in quickly and expect to be able to use it. You need to let it soak. And after enough soaking, it's completely filled. And when you take it out of the bucket, the water is just you know, dripping out of it and it's oozing out. Well, I think the point of this illustration is this. If, if we want to be an oozing Christian, we need to soak in the water. We need to soak ourselves in God. We need to soak ourselves in His Word that has been given to us. Well, so if you will, turn to somebody next to you and say, I want to be an oozing Christian. I don't know if anybody's doing it, but... <laughs> I want to be an oozing Christian. 
And so that's what I propose we do for the next 20, 30 minutes. Let's soak in the words of Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. And of course, it will help very much in that soaking if you turn with me to that passage also. So we have 30 seconds, grab your Bibles and yeah, we're going to do some soaking. So are we there? Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, Rajesh, um, thanks for the sponge. Isaiah chapter 6 tells us Isaiah's vision of the Lord in his temple and the Lord's commission to Isaiah. In verse 1, let's read together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So Isaiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. You know, the nation of Israel was split into the northern and the southern kingdom after King Solomon. And that happened, well, 200 years before King Uzziah. Well, he has an entire chapter written about his reign in 2 Chronicles 26. He reigned 52 years, and that's actually a pretty long time for a king at that time. And why do I say that? We want to know the background. We know that during his reign, the kingdom was relatively strong, secure, and prosperous. And this was the environment that Isaiah grew up in. And Isaiah's ministry spanned King Uzziah and the, and the next three kings after him, which is actually quite amazing, considering that, you know, we know that no, no one quite listened to his preaching. So this is one guy with staying power and actually someone we can all learn from if we're ever given the task of bringing an unpopular message to somebody else. And we know from chapter 1-1 one, one, that um, Isaiah's dad, he was called um, Amos, uh, A-M-O-Z, not to be confused with another Amos that we probably know, A-M-O-S, that's one of the minor prophets. Well, little is known about this Amos person, but Jewish tradition has it that um, he was, he was uh, the uncle of King Uzziah. So I, I, uh, Amos, uh, Isaiah's dad, was the uncle of King Uzziah. And those who think quickly, that makes Isaiah the cousin of the king, Uzziah. So Isaiah was not only priestly, he was of the priestly class, which also meant that he had a high status. He was also closely related, related to the king. He was royalty. And I want you to remember Isaiah's background because it's going to give us a greater insight into God's interactions with him later. So let's move on for now. Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So we see God is an absolute sovereign. He's seated, he's in an exalted place, and the train of his robe is filling the entire temple. And that's a depiction of his glory. And do you know what's so interesting about this? We're actually told in John chapter 7 that this vision um, of God that Isaiah saw was in fact Jesus in his glory. Well, but of course, and then when I read that, of course it now makes sense because Isaiah has often been called the Old Testament evangelist and he prophesied over Jesus more than any other Old Testament prophet. So whether he knew it or not, he actually saw Jesus and he wrote about him. And it's likely that Isaiah was, you know, he was really a temple 
priest before before he saw this vision and he goes regularly to the temple he does his duties never expecting to see god maybe just like us we go regularly to church on sundays we do our duties we go home well in corona times we jump through the same hoops on sundays but in the comfort of our own homes but for isaiah one fine sunny day maybe quite like this today bam oh my god oh my god and i'm not saying this flippantly because while well, we teach our children at home not to use the lord's name in vain i'm saying it i'm using this literally because isaiah sees god in a place where he never expected god to show up in god's own temple so I'm thinking, what about us? Have we gotten into the habit you know, of doing our regular Sunday duties in church, for church, but never quite expecting God to show up? Well, reflecting on this, I know I have been guilty of it many times. Church going has become a comforting weekly ritual but we never quite expect that we will be seeing God. Why is that? Well, take this morning, when you zoomed in for the service, uh, do you click on the button because it has become a habit for you? Or because you thought, yes, I have a special meeting with God today. How are we going to get our children excited about going to church if church going has become just a matter of something we do on schedule instead of we are going to church because we are going to be meeting God there. How am I going to get my family, my friends, my colleagues excited about church? If church going is just, you know, listening, going to listen to some nice music, hearing an inspiring talk, if I'm lucky, and then drinking coffee afterwards. I mean, if that is all there is to church, then I think my time could be spent more fruitfully staying home, listening to a TED talk, and well, maybe playing some nice music in the background. Especially if I find out I don't really like the coffee that they serve in church. So, so why do we go to church but have no expectation that God will show up? Well, let's see what happens. And God shows up. Verse 2. Above Jesus stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Two, his, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And then one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the very foundations shook at the voice of the seraphim. And the house was filled with smoke. So, what are these seraphim? We actually don't really know much about them. And this is the only time in the entire Bible that are given this name, seraphim. And, well, they appear, kind, they appear another one time in the Bible, as in Revelation 4. The heavenly beings in Revelation 4 are also described as having six wings, and their speech is similar to those in Isaiah's vision. But they are named there. So, we don't really know whether you know Isaiah's vision is the same vision of the beings of, of what we, we saw in 
in Revelation 4, but we know they are heavenly beings. And we know that one of their tasks is to give glory, honor, and thanks to the Lord. And if you go read Revelation 4, uh, not now, <laughs> the vision there is actually more terrifying than, than in Isaiah's vision. In contrast, I want to show you our own mental picture of how angels look like. Rajesh, can I have a picture of, or my mental picture of, there you go. This, you would know and recognize. You may not know who painted it, so I'll let you know who painted it. I, I didn't know who painted it until I, I, I was thinking of this picture and I, so I went to look for it. This is Raphael's painting of angels in the Middle Ages. And this has, you know, informed our imaginations of, of what angels are supposed to be looking like. Well, Raphael is considered one of the three great masters of the Italian Renaissance. Well, I, I know this is a masterpiece, but Raphael, he clearly didn't read his Bible. And I think he also has also done a great disservice to generations of us because now when we think of angels, what do we think of? We think of fat, chubby beings with cute little wings. Well, that was the comic interlude and now we go back into the serious business of um, soaking. Thanks, yep. Yeah. So these heavenly beings described in the Bible, they are terrifying to behold. Just their voices themselves they shook the temple's foundations. You know, when I first read the Bible, when I first read the, this passage, when I when I heard, oh, the foundations were being shaken, I thought it was God's voice. But no, it was the angels' voices that shook the foundations of the temple. But so what's what's my point? My point is this: even these terrifying creatures, they need to hide their faces in the light of the glory of our holy God. So some of you probably know the triple proclamation, holy, 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 is the superlative of this single word. So that's supremely holy. And in fact, the Hebrew meaning of the word holy, it means that something that is set apart. And the meaning of glory in Hebrew, it refers to something of weight, something with importance. And so there you have it. In the Seraphim's proclamation, not only is the Lord God of immense value, the Lord God's holiness sets us apart from Him. And even the terrifying and powerful angels do not dare look into God's holiness. And yet, you know, here we are mere mortals. We take God's holiness so lightly. You know, we speak of God, the loving Father. We speak of Jesus as our friend. I speak of Holy Spirit as our comforter and counsellor. But really, how often do we actually think of God's holiness? And this holiness of God is really crucial in our understanding of our relationship with Him. Because the depth of our gratitude to God is directly correlated to our knowledge of the extent of our sin. And the knowledge of the extent of our sin is directly correlated to our view of God. Shall I say it again? The depth of our gratitude to God is directly correlated to our knowledge 
of the extent of our sin and the knowledge of the extent of our sin is directly correlated to our view of God. Alright? Big concept statement. Let me use a simple illustration. So, say you call someone to come babysit your kids for free and advance apologies to those without kids. You know, I'm a mom, so all my illustrations have to do with, you know, cleaning sponges, kids, you know, slow cookers, what have you. So you call your babysitter and you leave the house and you come back and you check, you call back to check in and your babysitter tells you, oh, no worries, kids are in bed and, and since at that time, I clean up some things around the house for you. Oh, 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 thank you. You're thankful and you're grateful to her. What happens when you return home and you, you discover that your babysitter has not only cleaned up the house, She's also folded your laundry that's been sitting in a pile for a week and as she's ironing your clothes, she washed the dirty dish dishes in the sink which of course you didn't have time to wash because you were rushing out and then you and dried them and just put them into the cupboard and then even wiped down all the dust on the cupboard that you never even saw. So your house is thick and span. Where is your level of thankfulness and gratefulness now? Has it now gone up maybe 10 notches? So I put it on another layer. What if I tell you that the babysitter is also the Queen of England? What is your level of gratitude now? It's gone through the roof. Your sense of gratitude is affected not only by the knowledge of what she has done for you, but also because of who she is. You see, our level of gratitude is related to our knowledge of how much the person has done for us. And our gratitude to God is related to our knowledge of how much we know that God has done for us on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. Our house is thick and span. And our realization of how much dirt has been cleaned up in our house is also directly related to our view of the holiness of God. Well, if you, if you think, you know, my house is just moderately dirty, then I think you have an inaccurate view of God's standards of cleanliness. And that also translates to how grateful you are or not to God. So Isaiah saw God in all his holiness and glory. I don't know, perhaps for the very first time. And what happens? He fell flat on his face in repentance. Verse 5, he says, Woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What happens then? With his repentance, a series of events take place. Verse 6, One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth with it and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What is this coal? The coal on the altar represents the sacrifice, the price that Jesus had paid. And it's only with the acceptance of this sacrifice that Isaiah's guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. If you think about it, this is our gospel message, isn't it? Our God is so holy, sinful man cannot even bear to come near him. But God provides 
the gift of Jesus' sacrifice, and if we accept it, we are cleansed from our sins, and the result is now that we can have access to God. The Gospel in Isaiah. And actually, there's really something else that's really interesting. It's just two words, but if you read the passage too quickly, we miss it. Did you also notice that not, not even the seraphim, they're allowed to touch the sacrifice? He used tongs. Whereas Isaiah, Isaiah gets the privilege of having this burning coal of Jesus' sacrifice touch his lips. What an amazing picture of the mercy and grace of God that we, we as no other created being, have been privileged with. We get the privilege of having Jesus' sacrifice touch our lips. And so finally, after Isaiah's repentance and his cleansing, he is now commissioned. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. Note that God did not just issue a command. God gave Isaiah a choice. I mean, Isaiah at this point, right, he is, he's so terrified and that, you know, God could have issued any command, go jump in the lake, oh, could have issued any command and Isaiah would have done it. He's, he's completely frightened. But now, here is our God full of love, full of grace and mercy and gentleness. You know what he does? He asks. He asks Isaiah. And this is how God treats us too. Even after our conversions, after we've given our lives to God, God gives us a choice still, you know, to go, not to go, to choose His ways or not to choose His ways. Do you see now His depth of His love for us? We have eight verses which is so incredibly packed with meaning. What I've done is it's only to focus on the journey of a Christian as seen from Isaiah's experience in chapter 6, 1 to 8. And for the engineers <coughs> among us, <coughs> I made a flowchart. Oh, and you can, you can follow this flowchart as I summarize the process. Rajesh, can we have the flowchart? So, as seen from Isaiah's experience, step one, God reveals himself to us. Step two, we see God for who he is. Next, we see ourselves for who we are. Step four, we're convicted and we re-repent. And five, we accept the gift of sacrifice. Six, our guilt is taken away and our sins are atoned for. And, fi and finally, we are free and we are able to choose to live the life that God has intended for us to live. So I think all these seven steps are necessary in the Christian's journey. Where are you in this journey? And, and for some of us who consider ourselves Christian, I think this cycle keeps on continuing until we are finally called home to be with the Lord.
Don't get me wrong, the conviction and repentance for salvation is a one-off event. But the conviction and repentance for sanctification is an ongoing process. Because God is, as you know, in the business of molding us into the image of Jesus. And the more we know Him, the more He reveals Himself, himself to us. And so our journey progresses. Maybe I should just draw a dotted line up, dotted arrow up to the, the first step one again. And perhaps understanding this flow will help us also in our strategies for evangelism and for, for discipleship. If we know where someone is at or thereabouts, we can just focus our energies on what we can do for that individual. Do we pray for, the, for God's revelation in that person's life? Do we teach and we share the word? Do we create a space for reflection and, and repentance? Or do we offer opportunities for service? Etc. Etc. I do want to issue a caveat to this flowchart. So take a look a while for, for the, this flowchart and then I'll ask Rajesh to take it away. Yeah, thanks Rajesh. So the caveat is this. I think the flow process is it's about right, but I think everyone's individual experience is different. Remember, I told you to remember Isaiah's background? What? Priestly class? High social status? Royalty. And Isaiah grew up in a prosperous and secure environment. He had, uh, he had a certain social standing and status. Actually, not quite unlike the environment we grew up in. We are relatively secure, we are relatively prosperous, we compare to the rest of the population in the rest of the world. All of us, we have some sort of social standing and status. But anyway, with Isaiah, with such a background, I would imagine that he would have felt, you know, pretty confident about his standing with God. So what did God have to do? God had to reveal himself to Isaiah in holiness and glory in order to humble him, for him to be able to see God's mercy and to realize that his own standing are, are but just filthy rags before a holy God. But on the other hand, if you compare Jeremiah's call, and Jeremiah is the book right after Isaiah, God was very gentle with, with, with Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1.5, God tells Jeremiah, and I think this is, it's verses that are really my, one of my favorite verses because God is so gentle like a mom. God tells Jeremiah, before I formed you, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. And what, Jer what does Jeremiah say? Jer Jeremiah replies, there's only a youth. I do not know what to speak. Well, speaking to my youth there, don't say that. Because when God commissions you, He empowers you. So Jeremiah says, I don't know what to speak. And what does God say? God reassures him and says, no, I'm going to del deliver you. And here are two prophets, two really powerful prophets, two different revelations of God, two different acts of repentance. One was so self-confident, he couldn't be of use to God until God brought him to his knees. And the other with such a serious lack of self-confidence that he also couldn't be of use to God until God lifted him up and assured him of God's deliverance. And both needed to see God clearly for who he is, what 
for the one as holy God and for the other as a nurturing mother. As one pastor most humorously puts it, you know, some of us, we need to see God's grace and mercy to open our mouths and some of us need to see God's holiness to finally shut up. And, you know, those of us with two kids or more at home will be able to identify with this. We know that using the same parenting, parenting and discipline method on both kids may not always end up with the same results. And of course, God, who knows every single hair you have um, on our heads, He also knows exactly what we need, what the other person needs to be able to bring us to that point of repentance. And I can only hope and pray for such insight into the individuality of my children, such as to be able to parent them in, the w in, the way, in exactly the way that they need to be parented. God knows. So, whether you are an Isaiah, or you are a Jeremiah, or anywhere in between, God meets us where we are and shows us what we need to draw Him to, to draw us to Him. That's why our testimonies are all different and they're all unique. I'm going to land now. I'm going to end with just one interesting observation. Uh, it's out of the verse, for, verse reading for today, but it touches on verse 9 and 10. I thought it was so interesting. I needed to share it. Isn't it funny how God offers Isaiah a job and then only after Isaiah accepts, God gives him the job description. And what kind of a job is that? Verse 9. Your job is to go and preach to a people who will not listen to you in your lifetime. Yes. The job description that God gives us isn't always the easiest, is it? But God didn't measure Isaiah's success in his ministry by the number of converts he made in his lifetime. Isaiah's success was measured by his faithfulness to God, to God's call in his life. And God, in turn, was faithful to Isaiah because Isaiah's words have now been read by millions of people around the world, in every generation, in, even by us this morning. His impact and his ministry outlived him far beyond what he himself saw in his lifetime. And so the question that I want to leave with all of us today is this, will we respond to God's call and will we be faithful in it, even if we know we would never see success as the world defines success in our lifetimes? Let me pray for all, all of us. Shall we pray? Holy God, if we have taken your holiness for granted, we repent. Forgive us. And Lord, if going to church has become ritual rather than relationship, Father, we repent. Forgive us. Come Holy Spirit and fill us anew with the wonder of, of who you are and of your holiness. And Spirit, give us 
the courage to respond when you call and give us the faithfulness to persist in it even when the going gets tough. And I pray all this for all of us in the most powerful but also most gentle name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.